Hey, everybody. Welcome to our Week in Review. I am Stephen Cox, along with Shasta Conrad, chair of the King County Democrats. And this week, we are talking about the fight to save voting rights. As you know, in states like Florida, Georgia, Iowa, and others, GOP-run legislatures have been systematically enacting hundreds of draconian voting laws. But in a rare bit of good news this week, Democratic lawmakers in Texas walked out of the legislature in order to deny Republicans there the quorum that they needed to enact a package of some of the most restrictive voting laws yet and seem to work, at least for now. But Representative Trey Martinez Fisher called the walkout, quote, the equivalent of crawling on our knees and begging the president and the United States Congress to give us the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. We have somebody with us who has been on the ground in Texas working with the progressive coalition that organized to defeat this bill, James Slattery. He serves as voting rights attorney with the Texas Civil Rights Project, and he is also a former colleague of Shasti's from the Obama campaign. James, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. It's good to talk to you guys. Thanks, James. I'm really excited to have you here. And I know you've been doing really incredible work. Um, So just to get started, can you walk us through what does breaking quorum actually mean and how did it stop the latest attempt to restrict voting rights? Yeah, so uh, Texas is a little bit unusual in having, uh, I think, such a high quorum threshold. Basically, quorum means the minimum number of members of the chamber that you need to be present in order for the chamber to conduct business. Um, that also applies uh, often in legislative committee hearings as well. Most legislative bodies have something like this. Um, In the Texas House, which has, I believe, 150 members, you need 100 members to have a quorum, meaning that 100 members have to be present for the chamber to conduct any business. And uh, there are roughly uh, about um, a little over, I think, 80 Republicans and a little over or close to 70 Democrats. So the Democrats there um, have the power to, if they all are not present, um, or if they remove themselves from the chamber, uh, it breaks quorum, uh, so-called. And basically that means the legislative process has to come to a complete stop. So what happened is, on Sunday night, they were uh, the Texas House was considering Senate Bill Seven, which is now became late in the session the the last remaining major vehicle to do voter suppression in the session, and um, uh, it became apparent at around sometime a little after ten thirty p.m. on Sunday night that there are a lot of people missing from the chamber. And so um, at some point it became clear that there was a mass walkout of uh, House Democrats. And someone made a motion, a procedural motion that was really a test to see how many people were physically in the chamber. When they did the test, um, only 86 members voted on this pro forma motion. And it was therefore clear that there were fewer than the 100 needed to conduct business. And so uh, everything had to stop. The other thing, uh, other procedural item related to that is um, the Texas legislature only meets basically between early January and about Memorial Day in odd numbered years. And then it breaks uh, in regular session until after the next uh, election. 
Um, and the Texas legislature is controlled by a series of very rigid deadlines uh, for when bills have to make it to the next step in the legislative process. And those deadlines are actually meant to kill as many bills as possible because um, that's the kind of philosophy of state government here is that government should be doing as little as possible. Therefore, the legislative process should be structured to kill as many bills as possible. And um, Senate Bill 7 had previously been approved by the state Senate. A different version had been approved by the state House. And now they were on what's known as the conference committee, which is the compromise between the two chambers. And that bill had to get out of the Texas House by 11.59 p.m. on Sunday night. And so when at basically 10.30 to 10.45 p.m., it was clear there was no quorum and the legislative process had to stop for the day, SB7 could not get through the legislature and everyone knew immediately that it was dead. You know, James, um, in preparation for this, and we've been talking with you about this, we know that the work to oppose this bill didn't just come together overnight, that it was a huge progressive coalition that came together to make this possible. I'm wondering, what was your organization's role in that? Yeah, so um, our work began really when the last legislative session ended. And so we looked for every opportunity to basically make sure that the voting rights pro-voting narrative was heard in the legislative process. And so connecting organizers and everyday Texans with analyses of what these complicated bills would do, and even with knowledge that the hearings themselves were taking place. Um, and then when the big voter suppression bills came, we would churn out overnight um, analyses of these bills. We also, I think the other main thing that we did was as a legal organization, we're sort of unique in the progressive space in everyone kind of talks to the lawyers, right? Even if they don't necessarily all talk to each other. But um, since we talk with everyone as kind of the movement's lawyers, we were able to bring in new groups who had a perspective on voting that needed to be talked about in the legislative process, but who were not necessarily a part of it and bring them in so that way the coalition was bigger and stronger and more diverse than it would have otherwise been. So Texas doesn't really have a national reputation as a place where progressives hold much institutional power, uh, to put it lightly. How has the coalition kept people engaged in the fight for voting rights throughout the legislative session so that they were ready for, to mobilize for this last-ditch effort? So um, in some ways, we were very much benefited by a lot of other things going on in the world. So for instance, elections has been a national topic, uh, I mean, for a while now, but especially since the last election and uh, Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the election result. So the topic was always kind of in the air. And then we also benefited from the fact that other states kind of went first. And so Georgia in particular had a very high profile struggle uh, which ultimately they didn't prevail on, but it kept this issue in people's minds. And we also were able to take lessons from that and build particularly on the corporate accountability work and learn what they did well and then continue pushing. I think also this was a very difficult session for the progressive movement because uh, basically a number of 
civil rights and progressive priorities were attacked all at once. And so like, even if there wasn't anything happening on an election bill on any given day, uh, what was also likely happening is that the Texas legislature was considering the permitless carry bill, which they did pass um, a, a, a ban on a, basically a blanket ban on abortion um, and long debates over whether uh, trans students can participate in athletics. And so it, I think from the voting rights movement, it all came to be seen as like one large attack on all of our civil rights and all of our priorities at once. And in response to that, you've talked about how the strategy in opposing this bill was to make the sponsors of SB7 pay, quote, a maximum cost. I wonder if you can explain what you mean by that. And and do you think that it was successful? Yeah. So I think in states like Texas, um, where progressive the, the, the progressives do not control the formal levers of power, um, we are essentially in a guerrilla strategy here. Right. When uh, basically you are facing opponents who control the formal levels of power and are willing to use it, um, your tactics are essentially those of the guerrilla fighter that you are trying to obstruct and delay and frustrate, uh, which can have a number of benefits. What we found over time is that the longer the process dragged out and the more pressure was brought to bear, first of all, the more mistakes the other side made. Uh, And so we were able to expose at the first committee hearing on the bill that the chairman of the House Elections Committee and sponsor of the legislation actually didn't know what was in the bill. And that delayed actually consideration for quite some time. also pointing out that originally in the bill, there was a formula for distributing polling places that was clearly designed to increase the number of polling places in white areas at the expense of communities of color. Um, also caused, you know, disruption. They the, the point stuck and they felt the need to spend time to clean it up. And so, um, that's the other benefit of seeking maximum cost is that over time, the bill got better while um, the the sponsors of these bills were struggling to overcome the roadblocks we threw it in its way. And ultimately, it made sure that the bill at the end of the day could not be considered until the last day of session when the options for killing it were at its maximum. Um, so do you think there are lessons for pro-voting rights you know, activists in other states to learn from this win? And, and even if even if the win is temporary, you know, what can we take from it? Yeah, I think a couple lessons that we ourselves have, have learned. Right. Um, number one is that it is important for coalitions to be as large and broad and as diverse as possible, um, which, you know, Uh, particularly in a state like Texas, where you have big rural and urban areas, the more people you have advocating in the most spaces, whether it is a rural evangelical church in East Texas or um, or a union hall in Dallas County, makes you stronger and provides more opportunities to make progress on the bills you are fighting for and against. I think another lesson that 
one has to learn in Texas is there's a distinction between what is likely in life and what is certain. So the punditry when this session began was that the legislature will pass a voter suppression bill because the governor supports it, the speaker and the lieutenant governor support it, it's gonna happen. And you know, some people I think probably thought that perhaps time was not best served fighting to the end to kill this. And, but like the thing is, while it is true that that was likely, uh, such punditry is not certain. It's just at the end of the day, someone's opinion that something is likely to happen. But if you don't keep fighting, even when it seems unlikely that you're going to prevail, you will miss out on opportunities that you didn't know would happen uh, that, that may allow you to kill it. The, and the example I would give is that we did not know when we started fighting this that the Speaker of the House and the Lieutenant Governor in the state really don't like each other. And um, they got into a tit for tat late in the session where they were holding each other's bills hostages. And this bill was one of them. And it delayed it in part to the end. And that's not something that the political punditry would have known about. If you'd have looked at the situation at the beginning, you would have said it's hopeless, but not confusing what is likely with certainty. And so continuing your advocacy, continuing to do everything you can, even when the odds are against you, they're just odds. And the odds may actually be more in your favor than you realize. I really love what you're saying there about, you know, what is is likely um, is not necessarily what is certain. I think that's something for us all to keep in mind. And I, I feel like a bit of a wet blanket in asking this next question, but I'm going to. Um, so, you know, Governor Abbott has uh, said that he is going to call a special session um, to try to pass this bill. Um, we know that he went so far as to try to defund or at least threaten to defund the legislature over the walkout. Do you have any hope that voting rights advocates can still find another way to say pull off a miracle and, and, and block it in a special session? Yeah, um, because, you know, in some ways it's not any less likely than <laughs> what we just went through. But I think uh, time is not their friend here. So one thing that will be different in the future is that the legislative session that we just went through was largely under the shadow of COVID. And so uh, the, the safety measures that the legislature put in place were totally inadequate, uh, intentionally so, to keep, probably to keep testimony as minimal as possible. Um, and vaccines were not abundant when this session began. By the time we get to the special session, um, uh, the pandemic will continue to ebb, more and more people will be vaccinated, and so more and more people will physically feel comfortable going to the Capitol and registering their opposition. I think the second thing is that the bills only look worse the more time that passes. And so people have really focused in on like a couple of the newer provisions, like there's a provision that makes it easier for a judge to overturn the election and a provision that would ban souls to the polls on Sunday mornings. And so their cause like continues to weaken and like reporters are looking into this. They're trying to figure out where these bills even came from in the first place. And so I think that kind of grinding away at them, they may find themselves in an even weaker position by the time we come to August. And you know, at the end of the day, part of what makes this all worth it is that we bought time. Congress now has more time this summer to hopefully pass new voting rights legis legislation that in particular 
would bring states like Texas with a history of voter suppression back under preclearance before the special session comes. And so that is one more dimension of advocacy here is that what is happening in DC and whether the filibuster survives has a direct impact on the future of democracy here in Texas. I wanna thank you so much for your time today. Um, it's really been great to see you again um, and hear about all of the work that you've been doing. Um, you you seem pretty like, you know, sort of sanguine about the fight for voting rights. So I'll ask you if you have any words of encouragement for people who are struggling to stay optimistic right now. No, it is really hard right now. I mean, we are facing an offensive uh, of voter suppression in many states. And Congress, frankly, just seems inert. And um, the statements by, in particular, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema this week are just, I thought, very disrespectful to activists who are working night and day and sacrificing so much to hold the line. And, and I thought those comments were particularly disrespectful. But at the end of the day, we can only control what we can do, what we ourselves can do. And there is so much that we can be doing uh, in terms of advocating at the local level on whatever causes we believe in and speaking out. And at the end of the day, cumulatively, all of us doing everything we can, I have faith that it will work out. And like, look, if we can defeat voter suppression in Texas, even if it's a temporary win, it can happen anywhere. Those are great words to leave it on. And uh, I will just forecast to uh, to our listeners and viewers that we do have some action steps coming up at the end of the show. James Slattery, it has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much, my friend. Thank you, guys. And we are going to take a quick break and be back uh, in just a moment. So welcome back, everybody. We are going to bring in our friend, Will Casey. He is, of course, the managing partner of Left Wing Digital. And, you know, so ordinarily, the three of us, uh, we, we take a particular issue each week and we offer up talking points on how to discuss it. But um, this has just been an incredibly hard week. So I thought maybe we just kind of take a moment to talk about where we're all at personally with this fight. But uh, I will promise you this, we will not leave it there. Uh, I will be closing with some calls to action from this week's Indivisible Town Hall on voting rights. But I promise we will end on a good note. Um, Shasta, you just checking in. How are you feeling? Yeah, I think, you know, it's been it's been a rough, uh, you know, few years. Um, I think, you know, over the weekend, I was feeling some anxiety and depression around the fact that, uh, you know, things I think we all hope that we could like, you know, get Biden elected and that we could get great Democrats into office and that, you know, then it would sort of the sun would come out and the skies would be blue and everything would be a lot easier. And, um, you know, listening to Mansion and cinema and, you know, watching those battles play out, it's just proof that there's so much more work that we still have to do. And it's exhausting. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think the GOP is still holding on. And, and I think the sort of, you know, more traditional GOP of our youth is also gone and being replaced by like QAnon folks and people who are completely comfortable with the insurrection. And, you know, all of that has just been really hard to watch. And, you know, it's sometimes really hard to find hope and things to like keep you going, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to find reserves uh, to, to, to keep going when you you basically are watching one of our two political parties 
just devolving in, into an authoritarian party. Um, it's something that I don't think any of us really thought we would ever see in our lifetimes. Um, Will, uh, for people listening right now, you're wearing a very appropriate shirt. It says repeal and go f yourself. Um, uh, what's on your mind, man? I mean, I think it's just that, right? Like we spent so much time during the Trump administration just feeling like we were sort of, you know, pounding on the doors of, of government and trying to get them to take the, the concerns of people who are really struggling right now seriously. And, you know, as Shasti was saying, we were really hoping that like this would be a different era, right? Like we would come in, we fought so hard. I mean, I know I met people who knocked doors for Warnock and Asaf all like literally on Christmas Day. Um, to get to the 50-50, you know, Senate, like, tie, at least, that that uh, Vice President Harris could break. And to see, you know, Kirsten Sinema, because I think Manchin gets way too much of the focus on this stuff, um, to be see her palling around Texas literally the week that Texas does this voting rights uh, restriction, or at least attempts to, that we, we heard about in the first segment. And uh, with the majority or minority leader, um, John Cornyn, and the Senate is just obscene, right? Like, why do you need validation from these people? There should be no difficulty making an argument that like, listen, I'm a, you know, if you're a Senator who's concerned about bipartisanship, sure. But like blame the Republicans for the failure to engage on these issues, right? Like they literally just blocked with the filibuster an independent investigation into a terrorist attack on their workplace. Like, I, I don't know what more advocacy we need to do to make it clear to them the stakes of, of what we're facing right now. And it's just, it's frustrating. I mean, you know, you got to stay in the fight because the only other alternative is, is giving up and we can't do that. But God, it's 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 irritating. Ir irritating is a, is a very, very mild way of, of putting what I'm <laughs> feeling right now. And you're right. We do have to keep fighting because honestly, if it weren't for the work that I do with Indivisible, I'd probably be losing my mind. But I mean, you're 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 alluding to something that I think I might find most frustrating. And I want to kind of take both of your pulses on this. The fact that the solution is so very clear that that really what you need to do at this point is to eliminate the filibuster in order to clear the way for all of these, particularly for the, the voting rights uh, uh, measures, but, but so many other things that we work so hard, um, you know, as activists, as as Democrats to make possible the fact that the solution is in sight. And yet it's we're we're, unab we're unable to get there, um, partly because one of the people who is uh, standing in the way of it doesn't seem to have any pressure points that you can apply to him on. I'm talking about Joe Manchin. How does that sit with you, Shasti? Uh, yeah, it is. Really, it is really frustrating. I think to you know the MLK quote about like you know white white moderates and and the sort of the the true pain is from the silence from your friends. You know, it's like we talk about on the show all of the time that, you know, the Republicans, it's like, you can't negotiate with terrorists, which is basically what they've, what they have moved into with being unwilling to investigate the um, January 6th insurrection. And so the fact that it's now within our own party and our own people on our side, when we won, we activists did the work to get these people elected, to get the majorities, to get a, you know, a democratic president, we did the work and we did it because we expected that once we put them in power, that they would do what was right for all of us and for democracy and to have to sort of continue to fight these battles within our own family is so demoralizing. And so it's so frustrating. And like what Will said, I mean, like seeing, seeing Christian cinema, you know, like do make these rounds. It's like, what, are, what has happened to you? Like, what are you what are you doing? And, you know, then it just puts pressure back on 
us organizers and activists to have to say like, okay, well now we have to go do the work to primary you. Like we have to go do the work again and we have to take these fights within our family, which I would rather spend that on like expanding the family, getting other people elected, flipping seats and not having to do this sort of with, you know, these two people on the ends who are making it impossible for us to move forward. And that it's just, it's, there's, there's no words for it. It's just beyond. I already kind of vented on uh, mansion a little bit, but well, I'm going to give you a little bit of a layup here. I mean, doesn't it seem, um, I, I guess paradoxical is one way of putting it that, you know, somebody who values the institution of the Senate as much as he does somebody who, you know, he, he proudly sits in Robert Byrd's old seat, uh, uh, Joe Manchin seems to value the institution of the Senate more than the future of our democracy. I mean, that's that's the calculus that I'm seeing. How are you seeing it? Well, I mean, I think you also see the fact that like he needs if he's going to get reelected and who knows if he's even going to run for election or if he's going to run for governor of West Virginia, like only, you know, Joe Manchin and I guess the staffer who calls him every morning to tell him about the, you know, latest numbers on the national debt know like what his, uh, <laughs> know what his, what his thinking is. But, um, you know, I think that the, the reality here is that he needs to win over a lot of people who, you know, watch Fox News. And so like, I have a little bit of sympathy for him, but like at this point, you just gotta realize that some things are bigger than you. Right. Like you've got, you know, the entirety of the rest of the Democratic caucus essentially on board at this point. We're literally watching people in all of these states, you know, strip the right to vote from people in a way we haven't seen since the Jim Crow era. Um, and it's just, you know, you got to you got to make a stand at some point. Right. Um, and I think that this is what's truly been the most disappointing about um, him. And, and frankly, you know, when we talk about Manchin, we have to talk about people who have leverage on him. Right. It's Schumer. It's Biden. It's people in Democratic leadership who should be making this a non-negotiable for literally any priority he cares about accomplishing. And maybe he doesn't have any. And that's the problem. But that's, you know, an even bigger issue for us to deal with. And, you know, primarying Joe Manchin's not going to get the job done. Um, I mean, we certainly should have that conversation about Kirsten Cinema seeing as her seatmate, who will be up for re-election before her, uh, is, is, you know, Mark Kelly is on board with this agenda, right? So it's like she has literally no reason to be, you know, uh, the, the stick in the mud here. But when it comes to Manchin, like, we just got to flip a couple of other seats to make him irrelevant. Like, that's that's the only way forward here. Um, but the problem is we're not going to have fair elections to do that in the states that matter if we don't pass this bill. So, I mean, I the only thing that I can, uh, you know, offer as... As a, as a way to sort of channel this frustration is the work that folks at the Sunrise Movement are doing. They're doing a sit-in outside the White House right now, calling on uh, Biden to stop negotiating with the GOP and wasting time, um, and instead, you know, actually put people to work uh, doing the rebuilding of this country that we need to have it. So, I mean, there are people out here fighting the good fight. It's frustrating. It's demoralizing. Um, but, you know, there has to be a way through. Otherwise, we're screwed. That's that you. I don't think you could put a much finer point on it than that. And I will just mention, and I said, uh, you know, when we began this conversation, that I would uh, give some people some actions that they could take. I hosted a town hall on Tuesday with Cindy Black of Fixed Democracy First, Charles Douglas III of Common Power, formerly Common Purpose, and Lisa Ornstein of Olympia Indivisible. And it was all about preserving voting rights. And uh, I, first and foremost, I advise, I advise everyone to either watch or listen because uh, it's actually pretty uplifting. I have a link for both the pod and the video in the show notes. 
And uh, people on the panel really did manage to come up with a number of very solid actions. I'm not going to go over all of them here because we have a Google Doc that has everything on it. But uh, here's some highlights. So statewide indivisible groups are doing a number of things, including filibuster Fridays. We are calling our senators every Friday, that's today, until the filibuster is removed. Also, you can participate in a filibuster call Orama on June 18th. This is a day-long event. Basically, you reserve a slot, and uh, if you have enough people, which we usually do, uh, the office winds up, winds up being called uh, all day long about the filibuster. Um, you can write letters to the editor. This has been enormously impactful. Also, you can participate in an in-person rally at one of our senators' statewide offices on the week of July 5th through 8th. Olympia Indivisible, uh, Lisa Ornstein's group, is doing a ton of work with Arizona, including phone banking constituents and putting them in touch directly with Senator Kirsten Sinema's office to end the filibuster. They are also doing direct contact with senators across the country in partnership with Common Power, urging them to end the filibuster. Fix Democracy First is doing work to implement some recently passed laws that will restore voting rights, and they are also focusing on public education around voting rights. And I will mention that the best way to get notifications about all of this is to sign up for the Take Action Network, which will give you daily calls to action in your email inbox that you can curate for yourself. Again, I will have the entire list of actions in a Google Doc in the show notes for you, so be sure to check that out. Um, action is just key right now. As Joan Baez famously said, the antidote to despair is action. So before we go, I just, I'm, I'm determined to leave this on something of an up note. Is there anything that is giving you hope right now, Will? Uh, I mean, the fact that there's a lot of inspiring people running at all levels of government, right? Like, I mean, I think Shasti and the King County Dems have done some incredible work filling as many of these seats. Um, I think, you know, there are people running for local office across our state. Um, you know, I'm hopefully going to be chatting with a couple of folks who are running for uh, Spokane City Council, an area where, you know, I've done a lot of work on the sort of opposition side uh, in the last couple of years. And, you know, people who are putting their names out there, who are, you know, putting their reputations on the line are really stepping it up and making sure that, you know, even if the federal level is sort of intransigent at this point, like we have people who are doing the work and making sure that like at least at the local level, we're getting people who reflect our values. So I think that's kind of the, uh, the way that I'm, you know, persisting in this moment. Um, but I think that, you know, the filibuster has to go. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's, that's the way we've got to, you know, focus our energies if you're doing any kind of federal advocacy at this point. I will also forecast for people that the town hall series is going to be doing a series of town halls with candidates, including the Spokane City Council race. Uh, Shasti, I'll give you the last word. Anything giving you hope right now? I think, you know, the, the work that James just talked through, you know, gives us gives me hope. You know, I mean, that there are people that are standing up both in terms of activists and organizers, but also elected officials across this country that are standing up for democracy, that are standing up for our rights, that are doing exactly what we elected them to do. And that is it's powerful and it matters. And also, you know, thanks for the shout out, Will. I've been getting a lot of um, inspiration from these candidates that have filed um, in the last couple of weeks and who are, you know, like we've talked about before, like they're just standing up for their communities. They want to help. They want to do the work. And it's really incredible to see them. And there's so many, you know, people that are um, from all kinds of diverse backgrounds. And, you know, it's just really exciting to see and feel hopeful about folks who in the in the face of such um, challenges and, and, you know, really like whether or not this country is going to keep moving forward um, are saying, yes, I'm going to still stand up. I'm going to still fight for 
for what I believe in and, and fight for this country. And that that's powerful. Agreed. hundred percent agreed. And uh, for my part, I will say I'm actually uh, guardedly optimistic that Joe Biden has put Kamala Harris uh, on the task. Um, Kamala Harris, who has famously said, I eat no for breakfast. So go get him, uh, Vice President Harris. So that is it for this week uh, for Shasti Conrad and Will Casey. I am Stephen Cox. We'll see you next time, buddy. Bye.